Okay. Well, will you please turn with me to... I'm going to change the New Testament reading, actually, with apologies. But I'd like to read from 2 Corinthians 6 instead of Acts chapter 4. Tonight's passage is about opposition to the work of building the temple. Acts 4 is about opposition that the early church was facing in the first generation, the first uh, uh, initial efforts to spread the gospel in Jerusalem. But instead of that passage, we're going to read this one from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 18. Please stand. And uh, let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, um, help us now, we pray, to understand the scriptures, to listen carefully. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would accompany the reading and preaching of your word with your power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we heard this morning, we know that the gospel is your power for salvation for everyone who believes. That in it, your righteousness is revealed. And, um, Lord, we ask that you would please show us the glories of your power and of your saving work tonight in the scriptures. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Amen. Now let's turn back to our text, which is Ezra chapter 4. Right, Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But... Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. 
Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer. To Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Amen. You may be seated. I think that most of you probably already know the story of the Trojan horse, right? Uh, just to sum it up, there were the 10 years of the, the Greek allied kings um, or kind of military chiefs fighting against the city of Troy. And for 10 years, they, they couldn't manage to capture the city. But in the end... Uh, Odysseus supposedly had this idea, why don't we build this great big wooden horse and we'll wheel it up to the gates of Troy and then um, we'll pretend like it's a sort of parting gift that we're finally giving up and we're going to go home. We'll just sail the boats just out of sight. And of course, what the people of Troy didn't know is that the horse was hollow and that inside it there were Greek warriors hidden 
And sure enough, the people of Troy fell for the trick. They brought their horse inside the city. The warriors snuck out that night, opened the gates from the inside. The rest of the army storms the city, and it falls. The saying that has come down to us through history from this event is, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Okay, so let me give you a more modern example. You may remember in the news the last few years, uh, stories about the U.S. government banning a tech giant called Huawei from a whole range of business activities in the U.S. And the thinking here is, could they offer cutting-edge technology uh, for communications? Yeah. Could they do it for a great competitive price? Probably. The question is, is would it be worth it when you consider that companies very close ties with a foreign government considered to be a significant rival to the U.S. Are you opening the U.S. up to a major national security threat? This is, this is the thinking. So without getting to that, into that debate, I think it's a helpful illustration of a, of a, a modern example of someone trying to learn that lesson from uh, the people of Troy. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Although I, I guess since we're talking about technology, we could say beware of geeks bearing gifts. Um, I think that's the last joke I'll make uh, so another kind of way that this principle applies from another angle, this famous acronym TONSTOFFEL, which stands for There Ain't No Such Thing as a Free Lunch. TONSTOFFEL. Uh, and in other words, the point that's being made is that when something seems free, before we just accept it, uh, sometimes we need to think what are the hidden costs, right? What are we not seeing? What strings are attached and this, this is the kind of thought process going on for the leaders of Jerusalem in this chapter. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. And that's why our first point tonight is going to be a Trojan horse, verses 1 through 3. Second will be true colors, verses 4 and 5. And then finally, the tradition continues, verses 6 through 23. So a Trojan horse, true colors, And the tradition continues. All right. So, verse 1 begins with these adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And they describe themselves in verse 2 as people whose great, 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 great grandparents uh, were brought to this part of the world by the Assyrians. So, when the Assyrians, um, you remember how they defeated the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, back in the 8th century. And they took the people who were there, living um, in Samaria and the surrounding northern area of the Promised Land, they took them into exile in various other territories off to the northeast, closer to Assyria. Uh, But the Assyrians uh, were also conquering other people groups in other parts of the world. The Israelites were um, not by any stretch the only people group that were conquered by the Assyrians. And so these other people they were conquering from other places, well, they needed somewhere to put them when they exiled them from their lands. And some of them, as it turns out, they put in the land of Israel. This is a practice of the Assyrians as they conquered different territories, just sort of shuffling the peoples around. It would keep them off kilter, keep it harder, make it, keep it um, more difficult for them to fight back because they would be living in a land that was not their own. There's an example of this in 2 Kings chapter 17. In fact, I invite you to go ahead and turn there because... It really helps to understand what's happening here in Ezra 4 and who these people are and why 
Zerubbabel and Jeshua and company turned down their help. So, 2 Kings 17. The first half of this chapter is about the fall of the northern kingdom. The sack of uh, the capital city, Samaria, and so on. So the the northern kingdom by this point is gone. Uh, The people are exiled permanently. And now you look at verse 24 of the chapter. 2 Kings 17, 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. Uh, and the chapter goes on to describe how at first these displaced people uh, didn't worship the Lord at all. Um, but uh, the king of Assyria uh, gets an Israelite priest from the northern kingdom raises some question marks to begin with. He gets an Israelite priest to come back and teach these displaced peoples all about Yahweh and how to worship Yahweh on the assumption that, well, you know, if you're going to live in this land, then you probably should figure out how to worship the, the particular deity of this land, which, of course, is reflecting a very um, pagan notion of, of the gods that each one has, is designated or has a certain territory, a certain place that they're in charge of. Well, anyway, the people start to do that. They start to worship Yahweh, which sounds good so far as it goes. But then verse 29 says, Every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. Talking about these different places of worship with their own idols. And the Sepharvites, just to show the, the depravity of the idolatry of these people, it says the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, their false gods, the gods of the Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord, it says. <laughs> okay, well, we're taking that with a grain of salt, right? They also feared the Lord and appointed from them, among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So I think it's pretty obvious that when it says they feared the Lord, um, it's talking about a very formal, outward, ritual kind of religion. They are not fearing the Lord from the heart in the way that other parts of the Old Testament speak of fearing the Lord for Israel in the context of their covenant relationship with God. What it's talking about is not faith. It's not talking about having a covenant relationship with the Lord what they're doing is they're fearing the Lord in exactly the same way that they fear all of their other gods. And Yahweh for them is just one more. So in contrast with that way of of thinking about people entering in to the worship of the one true God for the first time, let's think about a counterexample. A couple of them, actually. Think about Rahab. Rahab is this sort of original paradigm for a Gentile joining with the people of God. And remember the end of Rahab's story, how she doesn't, just, she doesn't just start worshiping Yahweh as well as the gods of Jericho. And she doesn't just align herself with Israel, become kind of an ally adjacent to the people of Israel. She becomes part of Israel, fully integrated. Marries an Israelite man and ends up in the, blood, in the um, ancestry of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Ruth is very similar. Interestingly, another one of Jesus' ever-so-great-grandmothers. 
Remember how, she, how Ruth says to Naomi, Ruth the Moabite, by the way, not an Israelite, and yet she says to Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. See, Ruth is not just adding on Israelite religion on top of her existing Moabite worldview. She's identifying herself with Israel. She is joining the people of God, body and soul. She's becoming a part of that covenant community. That is not what these people in 2 Kings 17 are doing. And it's also not what the people in Ezra chapter 4 are trying to do when they approach and offer their help in building the temple in Jerusalem. What they are trying to do here is they're they're sort of trying to, to glom on to this temple building project. But their hearts are not bought in to what true covenant devotion to the Lord alone is all about. As we read verses 1 through 5, or as we read it the first time, I wonder if some of you might have had the thought, boy, Zerubbabel was really harsh with these people. They just wanted to help, right? They just wanted to help. They just wanted to worship God too. What's wrong with that? Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what these people, what the Israelites should have wanted here? And if you did have that thought, I hope that a little review of the history here can help to clarify things, to, to help you at least understand the, the suspicion of Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other leaders in turning down this offer of assistance. Because when these guys say, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the Assyrians brought us here, see, what, what Zerubbabel and Jeshua hear is, give us a chance to mix our brand of paganism in with the worship of your God. Let us in on the ground floor. Let us pour some of our pagan concrete into the foundation of the temple so that the kind of generic pagan religion of the ancient Near Eastern, Near, ancient Near Eastern world can kind of absorb what you're doing here, can kind of assimilate you so that You can become, wouldn't this be great, you could become yet another arm of the sprawling system of idolatry that's already in place all over the ancient world. It's like these people, these surrounding people are saying, we're we're good with our religion and you're welcome to be part of it. We're always willing to add on more gods, right? We're always willing to add on more temples, more places of worship. But we want to help you here. We want to help you to kind of fit in with what's already going on. We want to help you to play by our rules. We want to integrate you with what we've already got going on religiously around here. So maybe you can understand why Zerubbabel and Jeshua want no part of this. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. And yes, that can sound at first pretty cold, pretty narrow, perhaps. There's so much in the background which causes that very purposefully rigid and unyielding response to make a lot more sense. So there are a couple ways you can imagine this going. They offer the help. The help is rejected. What's going to be the next thing? Another counterexample another non-Israelite woman. We've talked about Ruth. we talked about Rahab. 
Think about another. Think about the Canaanite woman that approaches Jesus in the Gospels. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Heal my daughter. And at first, you remember how Jesus holds her kind of at arm's length, testing her, seeing what's going to happen. What is her faith like? What is she really after here? You remember what happens? That woman persists. She not only persists, but she humbles herself in a very dramatic way. Lord, don't even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She has the heart, the faith of a true child of God, as Jesus goes on to acknowledge and honor this woman very greatly, as she has shown her true colors as someone who truly wants Jesus on his terms, not on her own terms. That's kind of what Jesus was testing in that passage. Well, these people certainly show their true colors in what follows, but in quite a different way says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. It's like they're saying, if we can't be part of this, then we don't want you to do it either. If we can't help you build the temple, then this temple is not getting built. See, if they were really interested in the worship of the Lord... If they were really interested in worshiping him according to his word, well, then wouldn't they be happy to see that go on, the temple building go on, the worship go on, whether they were allowed to be part of it or not? Obviously, they would want to be a part of it, but at least they wouldn't be trying to put a stop to it. And if they had had that attitude of saying, oh, we're just so disappointed, we really, really do want to worship the Lord and the Lord alone, please let us join with you, Israel, I think we can be pretty confident that that kind of attitude in the long run would have resulted in them being gathered in, joining with that worship and joining with the covenant community. But see, that's not what they wanted in the first place. That was never the plan. For them, this whole offer of help was a power play, pure and simple. This is about, I'll tell you what this is about. This is about controlling sacred space. It's about controlling sacred space. We've talked about this before, right? Uh, You may remember this from our Sunday school study. Uh, on the rise and triumph of the modern self. This is something that Carl Truman, who wrote that book, likes to talk about a lot in different contexts. Um, How the idea that to influence culture, to shape people's minds and imaginations, one of the most important things that you have to control is space, and the other is time. You control space and time in a culture, society. You will control people's imaginations, the way they think, and what they consider to be plausible. And this is one of the reasons... Um, that things like monuments and the names of public buildings end up becoming such significant battlegrounds in the uh, so-called culture wars. It's a battle over the control of time. Of, it's a, a battle over the control of space and the way that space, public space, shapes people's minds. Same thing goes with the control of time. You can see this with public holidays and so on. Um, and we talked about this last week. Again, two of the returning exiles' uh, top priorities when they get back to Jerusalem, have to do with sacred space, the building of the altar, and sacred time, the Feast of Tabernacles. Space and time to shape what the covenant community is going to be like now that they've returned in faithfulness to the Lord and his word. What's happening here is that these other people are trying to compete for control of that sacred space. And when the smiling, friendly approach, the offer of help, approach doesn't work. The carrot 
in the one hand, well, they're ha very happy to switch to the other hand that's holding the stick and use that instead to accomplish what they want. And as it turns out, in the short run, uh, this strategy is frighteningly effective. The outcome we find out all the way down in verse 24, actually, of this chapter. I'll explain that more in a minute. Where it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Um, this is a little hard to see, especially the way the English translation is laid out, and also just the way that the uh, Hebrew history writing is a little different from the way we would write it if it were a textbook being written today. Um, you have to understand that verses 6 through 23 are an interlude in the account about something that actually happens later. It's a preview of the future. And it's, it's clearly marked in, in the names of the kings who received these, these complaints and the, the letter. Um, uh, but anyway, I'll get to that again in a second. Verse 24, though, comes back to the original spot in the timeline when these bullies discourage and frustrate and frighten the people of Jerusalem, the temple building shudders to a halt. It's a temporary halt. There's hope coming at the beginning of chapter 5, and that, so we'll get there next time. But for now, for a considerable period of time, this is, this is bad. Their strategy, it seems, has worked, and the temple is no longer under construction. Okay, now let's get back here to verses 6 through 23. I was, I was saying they belong to a different place in the timeline. And the reason they're here in this place in the book is that the historian is illustrating for us that this opposition that begins with stopping the temple building is the start of a continuing trend. Uh, called this third point, the tradition continues, right? Uh, this is this, the temple building conflict is the first episode in a multi-episode miniseries of the opposition of the people of the lands around Jerusalem uh, to what's going on among the restored exiles in the promised land. Um, verse 6 describes the next episode in the reign of Ahasuerus. That's another name for the Persian king uh, Xerxes, came to the throne about, about 17 years after the events of verses 1 through 5. So we're looking a couple decades into the future. Um, then we look even further ahead uh, in the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 7, there's this letter addressed to Artaxerxes, who reigned another 50 years after Xerxes. Um, and in fact, uh, this letter that's recorded in full here and its consequences, the way the king responds, may be um, quite possibly a, a big part of what led to the mission of Nehemiah in the next book. And so we'll probably have an opportunity to come back to this letter and consider it a little bit more um, when we get to the book of Nehemiah. But again, this is many decades after Zerubbabel and the temple project. And so the basic approach here for the historian is to say this. Say, here's what Israel's adversaries did at one time when the temple was being built, verses 1 through 5. Oh, and by the way, this is exactly what they continue to do time after time for decades to come, continually throwing up obstacle after obstacle to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the restoration of God's people and God's worship. So that's the history in Ezra 4. Um, looking at this as a whole, 
One thing that struck me is it reminds me of one of my favorite stories from the book of Acts. It's chapter 14, and it's the episode where Paul and Barnabas go to the city of Lystra. Um, and there's a remarkable miracle that takes place, and the people are amazed. And so their conclusion is, this must be Hermes and Zeus, their uh, Greek gods, here walking among us. And they try to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes. Um, and of course, Paul and Barnabas say, no way, we're men like you. You can't do it. You can't offer sacrifices to us. And the amazing thing in that story is how all that enthusiasm, all of that frenzy of the crowd turns so suddenly. It doesn't make very different when the opponents from another city, uh, opponents of Paul and Barnabas from another city show up and they start feeding this crowd a very different set of ideas. And all of a sudden, instead of wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas, now they're determined to kill them. They stone Paul. They leave him for dead outside the city. And I'm reminded of that story here because of the rapid turn I was talking about earlier. That, that gaping contrast between verse 2, Oh, let us help you. We want to build this temple together and give each other hugs. And then verse 4. We're going to put a stop to this. If we can't be a part of it, we don't want you to be a part of it either. And both histories, this one and the one in Acts 14, both of them are a reminder to the church that we need to be on guard as the people of God, not only against the overt opposition of God's enemies, but also against the covert opposition of God's enemies. Understand that? We need to be on guard not just against the world's frowns, but also, and perhaps even more, against its smiles. Remember John chapter 2? Jesus had done some miracles in Jerusalem, and people were starting to, to believe in him. Maybe a movement was starting. Or what does it say? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because... He knew all people. He himself knew, it says, what was in man. Jesus knew what was in man. In other words, the Lord Jesus was able to see through people's outward enthusiasm. He knew better than to embrace it prematurely. He understood that what was in people's hearts did not always match what was on their faces and on their lips. Still today, the church has got to keep its head on straight regarding this very same lesson. It is a perennial one in every generation. We have got to beware of Greeks bearing gifts to the church. We've got to have a healthy skepticism when the world outside the church offers us its congratulations and its help. Careful that... When we see, for example, opportunities maybe for co-belligerence with non-Christians for causes that we kind of happen to agree on in a particular instance, we've got to evaluate in that moment, are there strings attached here? Are there subtle ways where we're being asked to change our core identity, where we're being asked to make concessions or adjustments to what we believe or practice what are we having to give up, in, order, in other words, in order to pursue what seems like a good deal in coordinating with entities outside the church? 
whether those are financial entities or political or media-related. There are all kinds of shapes that this can take. Um, it, it, it just is the reality that there are many people out there who, and many organizations, many institutions that are very willing. They're falling all over each other, in fact, it seems like to offer help of one kind or another to the church and to Christians. I say offer, but I should say sell. There's the, ah, I forget who said it, um, the adage about the online world that if it's free, it's not really free. It just means that you are the product. <laughs> and the church has got to watch out for that idea. Are we becoming the product for someone else's agenda? But the idea is that the offers come like, here, let us, let us help you, uh, perhaps, with your approach to communication. Right? We want to help you with communication. Because, you see, preaching is just not the way to connect with modern people, right? Let us offer you instead. Let us help you with this vast array of media that's going to connect with people so much better than this, this preaching thing that the Bible talks about. You might say, let us offer you let us help you with your with your music. Let us give you our our music that can that can please and entertain and help people feel good, and that's just easy. That's easy for them to connect with because of what they're listening to all the time everywhere else. And 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 just can avoid all of this deep content and all of this demand more demanding music to support that deep content that's more challenging for people to learn and understand. That takes work. People don't want to work. Let us help you. The world will say, let us, let us help you adjust your vocabulary. Let us, let us give you a new vocabulary, new words that will sort of sharpen, sharpen the soft edges of the law of God, that will help make you less offensive and more inclusive. Let us offer you, say, let us offer you our strategies that are for, for this sort of moralistic self-help. Because really, that's what people want. That's what people want. They would just want help with life issues. They don't want all this doctrine. They just want you to help them to live a, a better, more convenient life that's going to make them happier. And so let, let us help you. See, these kinds of things, these are just some examples. These kinds of things are simply our way of experiencing this same long, grand struggle depicted all through salvation history Pictured for us also in the book of Revelation, in those two major characters that we talked about so much in Sunday school a while back. Those two characters of the beast and the prostitute, you remember? She's riding on the beast's back. And what it's talking about there in Revelation, symbolizing, is the threat to the church, not only the threat of pain, but also the promise of pleasure. The carrot and the stick. The devil is happy, is happy to weaken the church with either one and to alternate, switch back and forth, whichever one seems to fit the moment. The devil is ambidextrous and he's crafty. And he's just as willing to kill the church with kindness as he is with violence. But beloved, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we are not ignorant of his designs. We are not ignorant of his designs, not if we are listening to what the word of God is trying to teach us in a chapter like this. We've got to understand 
that the Lord has called us in Christ to a very distinct identity, a distinct kind of community, a distinct set of beliefs and practices that mark out the people of God as different. And because different, also in a very real sense, unattractive, offensive even to many in our world. What we've got to understand is that that aspect of the church is a feature, not a bug. Got, over that, got to get over that reluctance to be unattractive to the world. We read earlier from 2 Corinthians 6, this is God's design. We are the temple of the living God. Think about the echoes of this part of redemptive history, the building of the temple, and whose task it is, and who's to be involved, and who's to influence it, the way that temple is constructed. We are the temple of the living God. Imagine the stakes of who's involved in the process of building that temple. And that is why Paul says that we're not that, that we're not to be unequally yoked. That's a phrase, of course, it's often applied to marriage, right? We're not to be unequally yoked with non-believers. And people think that's why you're not supposed to marry a non-Christian, and that's that's good. That's a big part of the application. Um, but not marrying someone outside the faith is that's really just level zero of living by this bigger principle that we in Christ are called to be different. We're called to a distinct identity. We are his. We are not our own. We belong to him. It is he who has redeemed us by the blood of his cross. It is he who is reigning over us as our king, our sovereign king, who has the authority to command the details of our lives. And getting that clearly fixed in our minds and our imaginations, I, help, I think will help to weaken for us that strong draw to seek some other kind of help, some other kind of power, some other technique or strategy for advancing his kingdom, for doing the work of the church and the Christian life that is in fact at odds, at odds with his word and his law and that comes with all kinds of strings attached. This is not to reject. We also believe in common grace, right? This is not to say that nobody outside the church has anything that we can learn from or anything that can help to instruct us to be more effective and to just have more common sense to avoid unnecessary offense and and think about how to gauge our our language in a more persuasive way or a way that helps to communicate um, the truths of Scripture more effectively to modern people. We can think about all of those things and and we can find those, those tools and those ideas wherever they may be found, bringing them into captivity of the Lordship of Christ. And that's very important. What we've got to watch out for is when those gifts that are being offered to us are contrary to the Word of God and are actually undermining the mission that they are purporting to help. It's true we need to grow in winsomeness. We need to grow in gentleness and persuasiveness about the gospel. And also, And also, we need to grow in something much more underrated these days, which is this dogged, unashamed rigidness, even, that can very frankly and candidly say, when the moment requires it, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. 
May God give us grace to discern when those moments come and to have the courage to speak with that boldness. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we desire so much to reach the world with the message of Christ. We desire so much to see the nations gathered in, the people of the world who are lost and without the Savior gathered in to become part of the fold. We're so eager to use whatever tool you may place in our hands to be able to do that more effectively. And also, Lord, we know that we must beware. The enemies are strong and crafty. Our wisdom is so limited. We need you to help us, Lord, to discern the way and to have the boldness and confidence to remain pure and undefiled, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, with this dogged commitment to his word and his word alone. Teach us, we pray, Lord, give us the grace um, to navigate these things in real life, where the right thing to do is not always obviously clear. Lord, give us the conviction and the courage, along with the wisdom, to know what is right and then to do it with all our hearts for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.